Good morning. Thank you, Jeff and the band, for all the wonderful music this morning. Uh, a couple of details about how things are going to go after the service. We've got, uh, there's sort of a miscommunication. Um, the kids' rehearsal for next week is right after service, and the congregational budget meeting is right after service. And so in order to keep those things from running into each other, because they would not mix, um, the kids, we're going to have our budget meeting like promptly after the service. We'll give you a couple minutes to clear the room or get situated and whatever. And uh, during that time, the kids will be having a, uh, I was told, a small and healthy snack to tie them over to the time of the uh, rehearsal. And I think I saw Adrian putting together the, uh, the marshmallows and the maple syrup, and he was salting the rims of tiny little margarita glasses, so that should be just great. Okay, let's pray for our time in the Word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this chance that we have to be in your Word, and uh, thank you for revealing yourself to us through your Word. I pray that uh, our time considering this morning what you've done would help us uh, to have a deeper uh, fondness and longing for your Word, uh, not just as a text to study, but as a means of knowing you, because it is in your Word that you have revealed yourself and your Son to us, in whose name we pray. Amen. Several weeks ago, as we were looking at the preaching calendar, Eric Riddle suggested that we do a Christmas movies theme, and we would each take a movie, a classic Christmas movie, and take a scene from that and uh, use that scene as a hook to get us into a passage that would take us to Bethlehem and Christ and the gospel. So the movie that I chose, my own free will, was Elf from 2003, starring Will Ferrell. Um, in case you missed this when it came out nine years ago, here is its own introduction. One Christmas Eve, long ago, a small orphan baby crawled into Santa's bag of gifts and was carried off to the North Pole. Named Buddy and raised by Papa Elf, it soon became clear he didn't fit in as he was much bigger than all the other elves. Determined to find a place where he truly belongs, Buddy sets out to find his real dad in New York City. Buddy soon discovers that the big city is no place for an elf, and his dad is on the naughty list. But most importantly, he finds that the world is seriously lacking in Christmas spirit, causing Santa all kinds of problems. So, with the help of a beautiful department store elf, Buddy tries to teach his dad and the world the true meaning of Christmas spirit, and to prove to everyone that Santa really exists. And we've got a clip uh, coming up. This is Santa and Buddy having a conversation before Buddy makes his journey. And he's talking about how excited he is to go see his father. Can't wait to see my dad. We're, we're going to go ice skating. And Can't wait to see my dad. We're, we're going to go ice skating and, and eat sugar pops. Yeah, that's the other thing I wanted to talk to you about. You know, Buddy... Your father. Well, he's on the naughty list. No! You're taking the books back? <laughs> see, I, I see what you're trying to do here. You're trying to make me feel bad when, in actuality, you're the one that missed the payments. But the children love the books. I know that. Uh, you know, I'm the one that ran the focus groups, but. I like hearing that. Listen, some people, they just lose sight of what's important in life. That doesn't mean they can't find their way again, huh? Maybe all they need is just a little Christmas spirit. 
I'm good at that. I know you are. Yep. Okay. Aaron begged and Aaron pleaded, but I resisted the temptation to wear yellow tights, green jacket, elf hat, and elf shoes. So you're welcome. But in honor of the occasion, I am drinking maple syrup to keep my throat going this morning. Okay, I will freely acknowledge that uh, this is a funny movie and perhaps the crowning achievement of Will Ferrell's career, and some of you consider it among your very favorites. Uh, but like so many Christmas movies, especially those that deal with Santa Claus, the more you think about it, the more unsatisfying it becomes. You all know how uh, the Santa story goes, and if everybody's familiar, she's going to hear someday. It might as well be here, right? I don't know. Nora? If your children haven't heard the truth about... Are you going to be okay, Scott? Do you know? Are you in? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, so there is a, uh, an all-knowing, all-seeing being who lives far, far away, who has mysterious servants and supernatural powers who spends the whole year judging and evaluating your behavior. And if that sounds a little sinister, then consider this warning that comes disguised as a song, but actually seems like it's talking about something much, much more serious. Perhaps you've heard it before. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake. All right, that is downright creepy. And... Um, <laughs> My feelings toward that song have not improved since Aaron began humming it relentlessly on Monday morning, and even Brianna got irritated by the end of the week. In the course of my preparations, uh, this cartoon was brought to my attention. It's a father speaking to a baby in a crib. Your shameful and disgraceful behavior will not be overlooked by Santa and or Jesus. And then there was uh, this gem in the form of a multiple choice question. He sees you when you're sleeping. A, Santa, B, Jesus, or C, Edward Cullen. I see some of you trying to pretend you don't know what we're talking about, you flaming hypocrites. Okay, just a little cultural perspective on three fantastical beings that are too good to be true. Okay, so why do we bother with Santa? Why have we perpetuated this legend for hundreds and hundreds of years? Uh, Santa serves a number of useful purposes. Parents, we can only be so many places at one time. There's only two of us, and... By the time the kids are four or five, they've figured out that there is a lot that escapes our attention, and they begin to exploit that for their own nefarious purposes. And so parents have to call in a higher power and, and warn the little monsters that, you know, look, when I go to sleep, when I go to work, when my back is turned, Santa still sees you can hide from me at school, you can hide down the street, but you cannot hide from Santa and his little wooden minion, the elf on the shelf. That creep will rat you out. And if he sees you being naughty anytime, anywhere, 
your scandalous behavior will not be overlooked or forgotten. And you won't get what you want Christmas morning. I mean, I love you, child, and I would love for you to have an iPhone and a pony. And if it was up to me, of course. But, you know, Christmas presents, that's Santa's business. And if you don't behave for the whole year, then Christmas morning will bring nothing but sorrow for you. Right? So that's parents can use Santa to be the bad guy who brings the fear and expands our jurisdiction and extends our surveillance. Aaron's stepfather is uh, one of five kids, Alan and four sisters. And their custom was that all the presents were hidden at dad's office and they came home on Christmas Eve, went under the tree, and then mayhem would break loose and everybody was opening presents all at the same time. And one year, Alan noticed that there were exactly zero presents with his name on it, which meant that sometime, somehow during the year, he had been very naughty. And so he, he talks about this overwhelming sense of shame that came over him. And he fiddled around with other stuff and tried to stay out of the way so that nobody would notice that Santa had brought him exactly nothing. He didn't want to be exposed. He didn't want his parents and his sisters to find out. And um, of course, once his mother realized that the parents, the, the, the presents had been forgotten at the office, they were promptly fetched and they materialized under the tree. And oh, look, Alan, they were hidden all along. And there's a crisis averted. So Santa has earned his place in the toolbox of positive and negative reinforcement, an agent of behavior modification. And that's good as far as it goes. But aside from the shame of exposure, like Alan felt, there's really only so much that Santa can do. Being good all year long for a one-time payday on Christmas morning seems like a high price to pay. And on the other hand, acting like a heathen for the whole year doesn't seem to have much of a downside because you get called naughty and you get a lump of coal, but really that's the end of it. Worst case scenario, it's just not that bad. As far as consequences, it's pretty tame. There's this nebulous standard of goodness, but Santa doesn't do anything to help us achieve it, and he does not change our hearts. He only cares about external behavior. He doesn't care about what's going on on the inside. Now, admittedly, there are times when I just want Brianna to behave for five minutes, and Santa Claus could help me there. But aside from those moments of parental crisis, I usually want much more for her than simply learning how to manage and contain her sin. I don't want her to just be uh, somebody who doesn't lie. I want her to be somebody for whom... Deception and dishonesty is abhorrent. Somebody whose word can be trusted because she's a person of integrity. I don't just want her to not steal. I want her to be the kind of person who values hard work and saving and investment and private property. And we don't just want her to practice abstinence because it's the right thing to do, but because she's a young lady of purity looking forward to a time when she can explore and enjoy that in the proper context. And if there's one thing that Santa cannot do, he cannot change a person's heart and desires. No matter what, Buddy the Elf might say, people don't change simply because they're given a fresh dose of Christmas cheer, having sung it loud for all to hear. Buddy's father quits his job and opens his own shop, but he's still going to face the same temptations to work too hard and neglect his family. And believing the truth about Santa is not going to help him make better decisions the second time around. But I think Santa's greatest use for us is in revealing something about us. We like the idea that there is a benevolent being who is watching over us, who is good and just. Santa is an excellent listener, and he gives us what we want. We like that Santa is all about us. 
We like it that to please him, we really only have to give him some milk and cookies and behave average because he doesn't really set the bar all that high. And he doesn't seem to think that our misbehavior is that big a deal. But most of all, we like that we are in control of the relationship. We can please him by our own performance, and he is obligated to give us what we want. And that's how a lot of us like to think about God. The most powerful and enduring legends that a culture has are those that strike closest to that which is actually true. It's no surprise that Hollywood is continuing to produce movies that have familiar, biblical, and even redemptive themes. And the Santa Claus story, in the same way, has a lot of similarities with some Old Testament themes. And let me show you what I mean. Eventually, we're going to be going to the book of Deuteronomy, so you can make your way there. Uh, In the Old Testament, God rescues his people out of slavery in Egypt. And he brings them into the wilderness and he um, gives them promises about the future and how he's going to be their God. They're going to be his people. There's going to be a land and there's going to be blessings. And then once the people are clear that he is their God, they are his people and they've received these promises, then he gives them the law. And the order is important. First, they are his people, the recipients of his promises, and then they receive the law. And in church, we are accustomed to viewing the law as something bad, something that has to do with the Old Testament, something that the New Testament came to clean up. And we view the law and the gospel as somehow being against each other or in tension. But when used properly, the law can be a source of great blessing. When used, uh, both the Old Testament and the New Testament sing its praises. But when used improperly, it's no different than any other tool used for the wrong purposes. We've all probably had the experience of needing a hammer, but all we have is a screwdriver. And no matter how much we bang on that nail, we really only end up damaging what it is that we're trying to accomplish. Similarly, an anonymous lady to whom I'm married told me that in her youth, she was at her grandmother's house pulling a hot dish out of the oven. And all the trivets were already in use. Long story short, flip-flops are good on the feet, but you cannot use them as a trivet without melting your shoes, burning the countertop, and angering your family. (laughs) Similarly, if you... Yeah, yeah, let's all turn and laugh and point. (laughs) If you are wrapping presents in the next couple weeks and you have ribbon that you need to, to curl, but you don't have proper shears, but you do have a brand new Swiss Army knife... Don't try it. That blade is too sharp. You will slice your thumb to ribbons and you'll get blood all over the presents. And it'll just not be good. Or so I've been told. (laughs) The point is, using a tool the wrong way for the wrong purposes will get you in a world of trouble. God gave us his law and we have come to recognize three wonderful purposes for it. And use it for the right purposes. It's a source of great blessing. Try to do something else with it and you'll get into a lot of trouble. And the first use of the law is that it gives us a picture of God. God has told us what it looks like to be godly and to behave in a way that pleases him. God is the one true only great God. And so he tells us, don't worship other gods. That's not going to go well. He is the creator and he's placed us on this earth to steward it on his behalf. And so he tells us, take one day in seven and rest, recover your strength. Enjoy creation. Remember your place in the created order. And God is kind and patient and pure and faithful and truthful. And so he tells us, don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery and don't lie. The law tells us about God because it is a reflection of his character and his glory. And there are some real 
similarities with the Santa Claus story here. We have a supernatural being from far, far away who gives us a moral code and obedience results in blessing and disobedience is disapproved of. But there's a key difference, and that is the holiness of God. Santa deals with sin with a wink and a lump of coal, but ultimately he is powerless against injustice and wickedness. And that's great when we want him to overlook our sin, but when we're the ones being sinned against, all of a sudden it's not so great at all. And that's nothing compared with sinning against God. He is the Lord and he is the creator, he's the owner, and to sin in his world is to sin against his authority and set yourself above him. And every sin deserves infinite punishment because it is an offense against an infinitely holy God. And can the law help us? Can it undo the wrongs that we've done? Can it change the nature that's within us? And can it rescue us from the presence of sin in this world? Let's find out. Please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 31 and the uh, 16th verse, please. Syrupy deliciousness. The people have come out of the land of Egypt. They are getting ready to enter into the promised land. They have uh, been recognized as God's people, and God has already begun to fulfill the promises that he's given them. And they are reviewing the covenant one more time before they go into the land. And let's see what God tells them about how this is going to go. Chapter 31, verse 16 of the book of Deuteronomy. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Translation, don't worry about dinner, you're going to die. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? No, God is among you. You're just not following him. Verse 18, and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. So after that piece of bad news, God has Moses teach Israelites a song because rhyme and rhythm and melody are an excellent way to transmit truth across the ages so that all the generations of Israel would know That they were going to fail. They were not going to keep the covenant. And God was not going to be pleased. And he was going to bring all the curses upon them. Just like he promised. But not for their destruction. For their restoration. And is that what happens? You'd think that the people would be extra motivated to, you know, prove God wrong and get it right. You don't have to flip too many pages further forward in the story to see that things start to go awry, starting slowly in the book of Joshua, but getting worse as the book goes on. Uh, things get worse and worse. At the end of Joshua's lifetime, in chapter 24 of the book of Joshua, uh, the people have gathered up to take stock of where they are. And they renew the covenant, and Joshua is giving them his farewell address to the people. Start in verse 14 of chapter 24. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years, and they had picked up some very bad habits. Verse 16, the people answered, 
Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Now, they're saying the right thing, but they have already begun to fall short. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If it sounds funny to talk about God being jealous, we can talk later. If you forsake and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. The people talk a good game, but Joshua warns them, you're not going to follow through. You're not able to. You can't. And God won't be pleased. So how does it go? What happens next? If you want to uh, read a story that is sad and miserable and will squelch all your Christmas cheer, then keep reading. Because the book of Judges starts on the next page and it goes south in a hurry. In fact, the next 800 years of recorded history in this book records how everything that God said would happen did happen. The people did abandon God, and he would call them back, and it usually had to be the hard way. And the deeper into the story you go, the worse it gets. It is a complete disaster. All the judges, the priests, the kings, the prophets, every single one of them an instrument of God to bring the people back into a right relationship with himself, and every single one of them a failure. There's bright spots. There's Samuel and David and Solomon and Elijah in there, but every one of those guys had train wrecks in their own lives, and the good that they accomplished did not last. And this wasn't something uniquely bad about Israel. In fact, just the opposite. They had every advantage. If anybody should have been able to make this work, it was the people of Israel. The point isn't that Israel was bad. The point is that even under the best of circumstances, humanity is so corrupt that left to our own devices, we are doomed. And you know what? That is the whole point of the Old Testament. God gives the law and right away says, this isn't going to work. Just like Santa's morality, the law is powerless to change the things that we've already done, to change the sinful nature that is within us. And it is powerless to rescue us from the existence of sin in this fallen creation. The law is hopeless. And believe it or not, that's the second purpose of the law, to show us that on our own, we cannot do it. The law teaches us about God, and it teaches us that we are not like God. He is a standard that we can never meet. All fall short of the glory of God. We need to be saved from the penalty of sin, and the law can't do it. We need to be saved from the power, the enslaving power of sin in our lives, and the law cannot help us. We need to be rescued from the very presence and existence of sin in this world, and the law cannot do it. It's Hopeless. Now, this would be a miserable and depressing sermon if we ended here and went home. But obviously, it's Christmas. We're in church. Carl has already spilled the beans on what we're here for in the communion meditation. We know that there's more to the story. And we're getting now to the good part, the beautiful work of God that he always intended to do all along. He did not leave us hopeless. As Israel was floundering around through the cycle of rebellion, oppression, 
repentance, restoration. God was sending them prophets, not just to call them back into repentance, but to give them new, fresh promises, to give them hope of breaking the cycle, hope beyond the law. Whenever God would prophesy doom for his people, he was always careful to say that coming out the other side, there is going to be a remnant, people remaining who would enjoy full restoration and wholeness as the people of God. As more time went by, more specifics were added. A son is going to be born, born into a certain family, born in a certain town. People will celebrate his birth by putting reindeer antlers on their minivans. And one day he will reign in righteousness over the redeemed people of God. More details about the how start to emerge. God gave these words to Jeremiah in chapter 31 and 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I will make with them an everlasting covenant, and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts." that they may not turn from me. Somehow, some way, God was not going to just pass over sins using animal sacrifices. He was going to find a way to actually forgive our sins. And he was going to put his... He's going to change our natures the way that we are so that God's law and the holy fear of him would be inside of us rather than something remote and external outside of us. God furthered this by giving... These words to Ezekiel in chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God lays the groundwork for a new covenant. He is gathering a people. He's making new promises. He is giving us his spirit to live inside us and guide us. We have new living hearts that are responsive to him and can hear and understand and respond to his word rather than the dead hearts of stone that we are all born with. But even as much as God told them about what he was going to do, he did not give them so much information that they would know when or exactly what to look for. So after a silent period of 400 years, when angels start popping up, and speaking to a freaked-out peasant girl and a broken-hearted carpenter, speaking to Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna, speaking to shepherds in a field, speaking to some oriental dudes with some very strange ideas about what makes for a good Christmas present. Even then, people were left to wonder, what is it that God is up to? On the first Christmas, maybe a dozen people and some sheep knew that God was at work Again, he was moving to rescue his people in a way that his law never could. Jesus grew up. He had a ministry of humility and servanthood, preaching and teaching and healing, religious discussion, especially talking about completing the law and fulfilling the law. And then against all expectations and hopes, he was arrested. He was tried. He was 
sort of convicted, and he was for real executed, and everything looked just as hopeless as it ever had. And that was the point again. But God, again, did not leave us hopeless. Three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, demonstrating that his death had not just been the execution of a criminal. Instead, it had been the successful, satisfactory sacrifice for our sins. God, again, was gathering a people and making promises, not conditional promises, obey me and I will bless you, follow me and I will love you, but the other way around, unconditional promises. You are my people, all who believe, so obey me and follow me and love me. God gives new life and he gives us his very own spirit and now his people, his church, us, we are finally free. Jesus did what the law could not. He paid the penalty for our sins, and he broke the power of the sinful nature that is within us. And now the third purpose of the law can finally blossom within us. We can finally actually obey the law. Jesus made it possible for us to be free from sin so we can actually live lives of holiness and righteousness. God gave us these words through one of Jesus' followers, Paul. Let it be known to you that through this man, Jesus, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit this is what we celebrate at christmas not just goodwill towards our fellow man or generosity and thanksgiving and Sugar plums and candy canes and maple syrup, although those are all good things, except for candy canes. Those are nasty. Instead, we celebrate that God has not left us trapped under the hopelessness of his law. He has moved. He has acted and he has sent his son to redeem us from our sin and reconcile us to himself. For our good and for his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for... Revealing yourself to us in your word. Thank you that we can look at your word and see that you are a great and holy and powerful creating God and that we can never measure up to your standard. But thank you that that is not where you leave us. Thank you that you sent your son Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins and to break the power of sin in our lives and to make it possible for us to live lives that please you. I pray that we would love your law, not as a tool of making us right in your eyes, not so that we can please you by our own effort. Lord, free us from wanting to please you by our own effort. Thank you that your law points us to your son and that we can see that Jesus was the one who kept the law and paid its penalty and freed us so that we can be with you and keep your law. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. In his name all oppression shall cease. His power and glory evermore proclaimed.